You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you were going to introduce us to the idea of random features for large-scale kernel machines. Tell us about that. Yeah. What I thought I would do is, is tell you about this paper that I really like from, uh, from a few years ago by Ali Rahimi and Ben Recht. Uh, it's called Random Features for Large-Scale Kernel Machines, and it appeared at, at NIPS, I think, in 2007 or so. It, it kind of does a really interesting thing to try to reconsider the way that we do things like support vector machines and perhaps other kinds of kernel machines like Gaussian processes. So one of the huge innovations of sort of the late 90s in thinking about things like support vector machines was the observation that they could be kernelized. And that is that we can apply the kernel trick to them, something we've talked about a few times at different points. Mm -hmm. Just to remind you what that's about, uh, the idea is that if you write down a machine learning algorithm and the computations that you need to do to the data can be framed in terms of inner products in feature space. So that means you know you have, say, pixels of an image, and to um, build your algorithm, what you need to do is kind of take inner products between those pixels. Then sometimes you can do something called lifting. You can replace all of those inner products with a kernel function. And this is a, a function basically that takes two data items as their arguments and produces for you something that you can think of as a kind of a measure of similarity. That's the way we usually think of these. And this is pretty cool because what it lets you do is come up with feature representations that could be infinite dimensional. So one of the things that's really hard about machine learning is coming up with good feature representations. This requires often a lot of engineering. And so what you might want to do is just spam out tons and tons and tons of features and hope that some of them are good. But if you write down an algorithm that has a very large number of features, then many of the things that we'd like to do like say a linear SVM or like linear regression or something like that, a lot of these things wind up having cubic computational complexity in the number of features. So it gets pretty expensive pretty fast if you try to spam out a lot of features. The kernel trick allows you to replace something that's cubic with the number of features with something that's cubic in the number of data that you want to apply it to. And so what that means is you can take, rather than even talking about large finite sets of features, you can actually get an infinite number of features. And that's pretty exciting and interesting. And what it really does is, is it, it lets us reason about these kinds of algorithms in terms of a more general notion of distance or similarity than about features. And, and we really like to be able to, to do that. Okay, so that's kind of something that permeates a lot of machine learning. It's this cool idea. You give me some cool features, we turn them into inner products, and then I can get even more features and manipulate them reasonably by, by dealing with this gram matrix instead of a feature matrix. The gram matrix is, is the name for this data by data matrix that contains these similarities. There's a problem though, which is that if you care about big data, then you wind up with cubic complexity in the number of data. And we all care about big data. So, so, you know, and lots of people care about big data, and there, there are lots of situations where you'd, you'd like to be able to apply a state-of-the-art machine learning algorithm like a support vector machine to millions of data at once. This is something that really does come up a lot, and we've talked about it before. Uh, the problem is, is that if you have an algorithm that is cubic, has cubic running time in the number of data, then uh, you suddenly are into a regime where you can't possibly make it work on a million data, or, or at least using sort of off-the-shelf linear algebra. And that's because the way these things generally work is you solve a linear system in the, uh, that has kind of dimension and the number of data, and that's something that's typically cubic. So the question is, in the large data setting, how do we get the, the power and intuition of kernelized things like support vector machines uh, without having to deal with cubic scaling? 
and what Rahimian and Recht uh, suggest is like a really interesting thing, which is that you can use your original feature representation and your kernel, and that if you have particular kinds of kernels, then you can go back into feature space. And that, and that in particular, you can go back into feature space in kind of a random way and wind up doing inner products again, but that with a relatively small number of inner products, you can get the same kind of answer that you would get with the kernel. And it's really weird. It feels like this kind of like circular thing that couldn't possibly work, which is you start with the features. You'd like to explode it into this infinite dimensional feature space. Then you do an inner product. You replace the inner product in infinite dimensions with a kernel. And now we go back to some finite space where things still kind of work out okay, um, but that's not what my like original feature space would be. So it's kind of it's kind of unwinding the kernel trick. But the the insight is there's certain kinds of kernels that if you if you kind of undo the kernel trick in a randomized and appropriately chosen way, you now get back to something that the random features you pick are still going to be pretty good. And now your algorithm might be cubic in features instead of cubic in data. So now you can have a relatively small set of features that are almost as good as if you'd done the big kernel ex expensive cubic thing. But now you can, you know, now you can apply it to a million data. And it, it's this really elegant thing. It turns out certain kind of kernels are literally functions of distance. So we often reason about them in terms of similarity. But some kernels basically really look exactly at the difference between the two data that are their arguments. We sometimes call these like stationary kernels or translation uh, invariant kernels. And, um, and, and most of the kernels in practice that we use kind of for real valued things have this, have this property. There's this result called Bachner's theorem, which says that you can take the Fourier transform of such a kernel and you'll get basically a positive density in the Fourier transform. And, the, and it's, a, it's a result that says that kernels that, you know, valid kernels that have this translation invariant property will yield positive spectral densities when you take the Fourier transform. Now, that sounds kind of weird and technical, but what it means, though, is that you can kind of squint your eyes and look at this spectral density as a probability density, and then you could imagine drawing, for example, from that distribution. And then you can take the inverse Fourier transform in a sense of, of that, and wind up now with a with a kind of a randomized approximation to the original kernel function. And this is essentially what they do. So they say, okay, step one, we get our data. Step two, we apply infinite dimensional feature space. Step three, we turn that infinite dimensional feature space into a kernel function. Step four, observe that we can take the Fourier transform of that kernel. And now we have a little density that we can just draw things from. And then we kind of go backwards through this stack and you wind up with a feature representation that's now smallish and finite and almost as good as what as as if you had had the full kernel but now you can do it with big data because you have a small number of features and so this has been a kind of like a an interesting and influential paper it's kind of a different view on how to get nice feature representations without having to do a lot of the the work of dealing with with great big grand matrices that sounds really amazing We'll have the paper by Rahimi and Recht up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the size of computing power in the future of machine learning. Hi, Catherine O'Ryan. Uh, first of all, thanks for a great show. Really enjoy listening to it. Uh, my name is Dirk Gorison, and I work for a drone startup in the, uh, in the UK. 
Um, I recently heard an interview with Andrew Ng, who was asked about the future of machine learning and deep learning in particular, where things were going. And uh, he was very clear that this was, you know, was all about bigger computers, bigger networks, billions of parameters, you know, more and more data. Um, and I've heard this a couple of times from people in the community, and, and somehow I find that somewhat unsatisfying. Um, for example, I'd, I'd love to see, like, a, for example, a 1% 1 increase in performance, but um, that with a 20% reduction in the computational cost or in the number of parameters. Um, somehow just, you know, scaling up to bigger machines and bigger networks doesn't feel very satisfying. Um, so I'd just be very interested to hear your thoughts on, on where the future lies with that. Is it just bigger networks and, and, and more neurons, or, or is there some kind of higher level processing or something more analytic that's going to come into play? Thanks. I think there's a, a couple things going on here. So I guess I, I disagree broadly with the sentiment that everyone only cares about um, about higher performance, even at the cost of increased complexity in you know, computational needs and in parameters and data and so on. And the reason I, I tend to disagree with that is because I feel like, at least in, in my experience, there are a lot of people who are increasingly caring about the relationship between machine learning and things like embedded devices and the internet of things, if you're into that sort of thing, which is to say that there's a lot of computation in our everyday lives that is happening on smaller and smaller devices. And a lot of those, the, the motivation for these smaller devices is precisely various kinds of data collection and processing, but they have severe power constraints and the chips have severe space constraints. And so I actually feel like there's a tremendous amount of interest at this point in developing uh, performant machine learning algorithms that can do well on uh, on small devices. Now that doesn't correlate very well with like Wired articles because it's not flashy to say I did really well on a smaller computer. Like you don't read papers bragging about people using 386s to solve machine learning algorithms, even though that would be really impressive to get like state-of-the-art performance using some old crappy computer. But it's, it's just that it doesn't really capture the imagination to talk about how computational resources that are sort of like not necessarily relevant, like broadly, that you get like pretty good performance still. Um, what people want is to know how well can we do. What captures the imagination is how close are we to, to solving the hardest problems and people don't really care a lot. People don't really care whether or not there's a denominator that's like hardest problem divided by how big a computer you used. People didn't didn't say to themselves that beating the world champion chess player using a big computer was less impressive because the computer was so big, right? People were much more impressed by the fact that it was possible at all. And I think a lot of the um, interesting new machine learning systems, whether it's you know question answering or caption generation or you know, various kinds of object recognition problem. You know, these are things that that were in, that are just hard problems, and making progress on those is interesting. Uh, whether or not you have the, they're subject to computational constraints. That is to say, I think there is an, an a big and active research community that cares a lot about resource constrained machine learning. In fact, I feel like I've seen workshops about this going on at major conferences uh, recently, and it's, this is a big and real agenda, it just doesn't tend to uh, propagate outside into the into the mainstream consciousness because um, it's solving older problems using limited resources. I think there's a lot of interest in resource-constrained machine learning, um, but I think when we talk about the sort of highly visible uh, problems that are being solved, it boils down to the idea that we're trying to solve grand challenges without worrying about 
uh, without handicapping those with computational cost. Thanks for your question, Dirk. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or via Gmail, thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. So today on Talking Machines, our guest is Andrew Ng, who's the chief scientist at Baidu, which is China's largest search engine. And when we sat down with Andrew, which was at the Rework conference that was held recently in Boston, we asked him the same thing that we ask everybody first. How did you get where you are? Um, so I've been uh, fortunate to have had lots of great mentors throughout my life. And I think that that accounts for part of why I wound up here. Um, boy, so I was born in the UK, grew up in Hong Kong and in Singapore, and then came to the US for college. Um, and so went to Carnegie Mellon, uh, uh, then did my master's at MIT, PhD at Berkeley, and taught at Stanford for um, what, about a dozen years. Um, and I guess in the course of that, I wound up you know, really fortunate to learn from a lot of great people. As, at Stanford, as deep learning was taking off, I think I realized that uh, I wanted to get access to more computational resources to, to build up deep learning at scale. And so um, I founded and led uh, Google's deep learning project at that time called the Google Brain Project, which I think you know helped advance deep learning. Um, then I took some time to co-found and uh, build up Coursera, edtech startups, doing pretty well. And after that, uh, uh, I stepped away from online education um, to return to the AI mission. And so most recently, you know, I've been chief scientist at Baidu, working to build up the, the deep learning and AI team and research lab there. That's fantastic. And um, at Baidu, you're you're spending a lot of time on speech recognition. What are you focusing on in speech recognition right now? I think speech recognition is one of those technologies that's been around for decades, but only recently, you know, it feels like there's a potential for it to really take off and transform the way all of us interact with technology. So I think the whole world is moving to mobile devices. All of us spend so much more time on cell phones, but no one has yet figured out a good user interface for input into our cell phones, which is why all of us spend so much time typing on these you know, ridiculous tiny little keyboards on our cell phones. Um, I think that most people underestimate, or most people don't understand the difference between speech recognition that's 95% accurate, which you know maybe where we are now, depending on how clearly you speak and so on, compared to speech recognition that's 99% accurate. Um, the difference between 95 and 99 is not a quote 4% incremental gain. It's the difference between you barely using it, which is roughly where we are now, versus you using it all the time and just not thinking about it. So I think 99% is game changing. And uh, right now, I'm very optimistic, very excited about the potential of deep learning to get us to that level of to, uh, you know, near perfect speech recognition. It seems like some of the challenges of making that jump uh, would have to do with making a transition from sort of syntactic type understanding, you know, parsing the speech with uh, things like hidden Markov models, but now deep learning models. Um, to something that, that has a lot more semantic content, disambiguating either noisy speech or, or speech for which the meaning is, is not totally clear. Uh, do you feel like deep learning has a, has a lot to say about this? Is, you know, things like, like uh, I don't know, uh, word vector embeddings and things like that? You know, so I guess uh, we've been thinking of the speech problem as maybe two components. One is the transcription problem, uh, and then the second is the maybe the NLP problem of understanding what you said. And maybe the two shouldn't be done separately. Maybe they should be done together, but it's useful to think about them this way. So um, historically, 
what most teams have done is converge to like a standard speech recognition architecture, and almost all the production systems use like very similar architectures. So all of them have these, um, you know, five or six hand-engineered or maybe learn components, uh, one to get the audio features, the second one to string them together into phonemes, and then there's a you know, HMM model to string them together into words, and there's a language model, and then there's a beam search. There's these components that have been getting more and more complicated over time. Um, the approach that we took at Baidu was we said, you know, instead of having all of these complex components and like half a million lines of code, um, let's blow the whole thing away and replace the whole thing, or as much as we can, with a neural network and, and then just do end-to-end -end deep learning. Um, so by doing that, uh, we had a separate language model. So this has maybe still two components. We were able to vastly simplify the speech pipeline and uh, we think make a lot of progress in the, on the transcription problem. Um, we have some work as well on the NLP problem. I think that end-to-end uh, -end deep learning yeah, is, is, is also promising for a bunch of problems there, but I think uh, we still have a lot of work to do as well. Um, one of the things that I think is fun uh, to talk to you about is, is to sort of get your sense of the, the history of neural networks and why they've, they've sort of become important again. You know, I think we all kind of know the story about how you know, neural networks uh, like had their kind of initial excitement a long time ago in the form of perceptrons and things, and then they kind of faded away. And then with the backpropagation algorithm being reinvented, uh, then, you know, they, in the form of multilayer perceptrons, they've, they become, became popular again. And then they faded again with the sort of the rise of, of sort of, uh, well, a, a rising interest in convex uh, formulations of machine learning problems. And now here they are yet again. Um, and, and I'm sort of curious what your both your personal history is of that, and also if you could share what you feel are, are some of the some of the either the technical insights or some of the reasons why we're we're seeing all this stuff again. I know people you talk about data and computation, but I, it's interesting I think to explore whether or not there have, has also been kind of new science as part of this. Sure. Yeah, I think um, I agree that a lot of the basic ideas of neural networks have been around for decades. Um, you asked about my personal history. I think my first. Um, the first paper I wrote in my life was a paper I wrote when I was in high school. So this was maybe like 23 years ago, 22, 23 years ago, when um, uh, I did an internship at the university when I was in high school and we wound up you know, writing a, a frankly not very good paper, but some paper on neural networks. Um, and then, and then, you know, like a lot of the community, I gave up on neural networks for, for, for a long time in the intervening decades and, and only recently um, uh, saw the promise and hope and then worked on developing them. I think that the reason neural networks are only taking off now is that a lot of their recent performance is driven by two things, in my opinion. Um, one is availability of data, and the second is availability of computation. So, you know, a lot of the neural network performance is, is, is just about scale. Um, and I think that the data we've kind of had for, you know, some number of years now, maybe a decade or something, I don't know. Uh, but the thing that we've really only gotten access to in the recent very small numbers of years is the big iron, the big enough computation in order to make neural networks big enough to absorb this data that we have. Um, I don't want to say that, you know, there were certainly conceptual breakthroughs as well. You know, the, the, the algorithms have changed a bit. We, uh, like ReLU activation units actually works much better than the sigmoids. So, so we, learned, we learned a bunch of useful things along the way. But I believe that um, the big drivers is, is scale of the data and of the computation, and that's what's enabled a lot of the recent progress. So, sort of like along those lines, you know, I, I think of you as a very deep thinker across a lot of a lot of areas of which neural networks is only one part. I know that's been your focus a lot lately, but but I also love you know your your older work on things like spectral clustering and, and other ideas. 
And, and so something I often hear when I talk to, uh, to sort of broader people in the, like the optimization community and signal processing and so on is they're kind of mystified by why neural networks can possibly work in a sense and why deep learning is a thing. What, is, what hope do you feel like there is in the long term for um, having a better theoretical understanding of, of how these, things, these kinds of things succeed? I think we're starting, there are definitely many researchers starting to get a handle on the theory of neural networks. Uh, just a couple of references, I'm going to geek off for a bit. I think uh, Surya Ganguly at Stanford had a, had a really nice analysis at NIPS uh, last year um, on, on you know, finding that um, the neural net, problem of neural networks is in local minimum, the saddle points. And then I think uh, Ian Goodfellow and Andrew Sachs and, and someone else had another really nice paper recently showing that on the gradient descent path, there aren't that many you know, weird phenomena. So starting, so a few researchers doing really nice work, starting to get a handle on neural networks and, and I'm optimistic that this will grow. Um, one change that, that I think has happened in computer science though is that I think 50 years ago, uh, computer science was really driven by the theory. So once upon a time, you know, figuring out that sorting is O of n log n, that theory really drove the field. Um, and today, some parts of computer science are driven by theory. Um, I see this a lot in crypto, actually, if, in security. If you find a bug and write a paper about a new security flaw, code gets written all around the world, so that's great. Um, but in machine learning specifically, I feel like more and more of the progress is driven by um, empirical work more than by theory. This is not to say I don't value theory. I love theory. I sort of start out as a, th as, as a theorist, but I think that there's still some work ahead of us um, to connect the theory and the practice better. I feel like there, there's in some ways a couple of different narratives that I that I hear from from people about uh, ideas like neural networks and deep learning. One of which is that it's uh, everything interesting is kind of happening in the in the like the first layer of a neural network, um, and this is something you know where essentially people are saying, okay, we find really good sort of first and maybe second layer filters, but then essentially what we're doing is coming up with interesting sort of randomized basis functions for the higher level layers in, in the uh, in the neural network. And this is something that some of your very influential work with Adam Coates, uh, I think, I think kind of reinforced, which is the idea that you can do surprisingly well with well-considered unsupervised learning of a single, single layer um, network, and then apply relatively simple approaches on top of that. And then there's kind of another view, which is the, the somewhat more dogmatic view of deep learning, which is that the higher level hidden units are really representing conjunctions of interesting low level features. And this is something some of your other work has also supported, such as the, the paper, I think, with Quark on you know, the famous cat paper, but then also uh, your work with Hong Luck Lee that, uh, that had this kind of very nice uh, learning of things like parts of elephants and then, um, and then whole elephants kind of higher, higher up. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to this, this like these two different viewpoints and kind of what your, what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, so I think where the field seems to be trending is to a deeper and deeper models. Um, I think one of the reasons, uh, uh, one of the limitations of the field maybe is that we don't have um, particularly good tools almost no tools for figuring out what the deeper layers are doing. And we tried a bunch of things. You know, we tried simple visualizations, we tried to measure correlates between um, activations of the deeper layers versus the input image. But I don't feel like we have great tools. And so when you can't visualize the deeper layers at all, 
it, it might lead you to think that they're largely random. But in computer vision, for example, I'm seeing that um, the best models are often you know, getting to be really deep models. Um, so I think that in the early days of you know, deep learning, I think we could get pretty good performance using very, very large shallow models. But I think as we tackle harder and harder problems, you know, like um, image captioning or image question answering, which, which some of our team was working on recently, um, uh, I think the trend is toward valuing the deeper models. You know, some of the other work that I really, I, I really love of yours has been in robotics. And you know, over the years, you've done lots of really sort of uh, really cool different things in, in robotics. And is that a part of your agenda at Baidu, at least in maybe in the long term at all? Boy, you know, uh, so Baidu Research works on many different projects. Uh, uh, I think that um, a lot of our deep learning efforts are focused on software or web tech type things. Um, we do have a research exploration into self-driving cars. So you know. So that, that is an example of a robotics project. Um, within our lab in California, we articulate our mission as developing hard AI technologies that let us impact hundreds of millions of users. And so if team members come up with great ideas for how to do that with robotics, uh, we'd be game for exploring all sorts of things. Robotics is one of the things that is um, relatively harder to scale. So I don't know. Um, and then there are a few promising areas like self-driving cars that I'm really excited about. But uh, I think that there are also a lot of opportunities in, in, in software. So the bulk of our effort has been on that so far. I mean, I think one of the challenges to doing long-term research in, in machine intelligence is that a lot of, you know, a lot of the sort of thing that appears to make something intelligent is its an embodiment, right? And that is interacting with a complicated world. I've wondered at whether there's some point at which we, we sort of really need to build stuff that can turn doorknobs and so on in order to have an understanding of the human experience that would then drive ultimately you know, the kind of natural language processing and things that we, yeah. want, to, we want to be able to have. Yeah, let, let, let me give a couple points of view on that. Um, so, you know, Rod Brooks and his ideas on embodied intelligence influenced a lot of people for a long time. Um, this is one of those things that, you know, uh, after at the end of the conference, we're having beer, right? Researchers like to debate, uh, which is how important is embodiment to intelligence? Is it possible to have a disembodied agent just read stuff on the internet or maybe watch videos and become intelligent? Or do you fundamentally need something that can control its own actions and maybe have hands in the reactor world or not? So I don't think any of us have um, a great sort of proof answer to that. Uh, uh, we certainly have a lot of opinions. Um, I think that even before getting to that stage of embodiment, there's one much bigger limitation of deep learning today, which is that deep learning today is mostly supervised learning only, right? In which, you know, the, the, the one thing that's creating almost all the value for deep learning is learning X to Y mappings, where you have label X, label Y, and you learn X to Y mappings. And over the last few years, we've um, learned to make those mappings more and more complex. Uh, the input and output started more and more complex structures, such as, um, uh, you know, uh, given an image, right, a caption. So X is an image, Y is a caption. So the structure of these things have been getting more complex, but a lot of it is still supervised learning. Um, I think that one big area where I would love to see a breakthrough is unsupervised learning. So can you watch a ton of video or read a ton of text and glean lots of useful knowledge for that, from that? Because there's much more unlabeled data in the world than there is labeled data. And you know there is definitely progress, right? So I think uh, learning word embeddings is one example of unsupervised learning that's working very well for NLP. I'm seeing a bunch of interesting things for computer vision as well. Um, these ideas feel to me like that 
they're in their infancy, uh, uh, and I, I think that there could be some potential breakthroughs there that, that could help um, really advance deep learning. You've been a you've run a really great research group at Stanford and then at Google and then now at, at Baidu and you've of course been a part of some really great research groups as part of your career and I was wondering if you could sort of just take a second to talk about your philosophy in running a group and, and perhaps maybe talk about how that you know how you do things differently at Baidu than you uh, than you did at Stanford. Yeah, let's see. So um, a few things I believe in. One is. Uh, when we at Baidu, we talk about a mission as you know, hardware technologies that impact hundreds of millions of users. One of our um, engineers, Brian Catanzaro, um, because we kept talking about our mission, Brian actually invented a new acronym, uh, HMU, because we use it so often, hundreds of millions of users. So at Baidu, engineers will actually ask each other, you know, hey, do you think this project has the potential of someday impacting at least one HMU? 100 million users. And if the answer is no, then, you know, we really gravitate toward not working on that and finding something with bigger potential. Not all the time, but, but this is one of the factors. So I think really going after things with a potential for a huge impact. A um, couple of things I learned. Um, I think that when you go after big problems like these, it takes a team. I don't think it's possible for lone wolves to succeed. And so at Baidu, we have a big emphasis on teamwork. I think that a lot of the progress we made in speech recognition was possible only because um, we have a fantastic computer systems team that built the HPC supercomputers, that part and then they partnered closely with um, our machine learning team that was you know, exploring neural network architectures. and that progress was possible only because of the uh, uh, real teamwork. Um, and then one last thing I've learned is, uh, this is one thing I obsess about at Baidu, is um, employee development. I think that the field is moving so rapidly um, that everyone needs to keep learning in order to stay current and in order to generate the next best set of ideas. So at Baidu, we obsess more than, you know, really maybe almost every other organization in terms of the amount of effort and the amount we talk about uh, creating space for everyone to keep learning. Um, and so that's a big part of our, of our culture that, that, that we really value at Baidu. So quite a few people have joined us at Baidu because you know they really wanted to become experts at deep learning and uh, saw that we built a culture to support them in becoming experts at, at, at these things. So for someone who's interested in machine learning in general and, and doesn't have access to Baidu or the, the creative team that it allows you to have, how do you, how do you teach yourself or how do you create a community or a team for yourself in order to, to do that continual learning that you think is so important? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, fortunately, there's starting to be better and better resources on the internet that you can learn by yourself. Um, so, you know, few students have taken my MOOC on Coursera, which is still popular today. There are many good deep learning tutorials online, written by us, written by you know uh, Yoshi Benjo, uh, uh, many others. Um, so there are those resources online. I want to share with you one thing I've learned about employee development, though, which is that. Um, if you think about it, right, let's say that you spend all Saturday at home studying, you know, reading research papers, coding up things, running little experiments to learn. Um, chances are there's no one to pat you on the back. Um, <laughs> and when you show up for work the next Monday, that day, that all Saturday you spend studying, it probably doesn't make you that much better at your job on the following Monday. So trying to develop yourself has almost no short-term rewards. 
but here's the trick, which is that if you do this not just for one Saturday, if you do this every single week for a year, then that will have a big impact on your state of knowledge and your career and the amount of things you could do. So I think one of the unfortunate things about learning, about developing yourself, is that there are very few short-term rewards, even though the long-term rewards are profound. And unfortunately, most of us as, as people, you know, much better at optimizing for short-term rewards than long-term rewards. So I find that the people um, most likely to succeed are those that um, can cultivate the habit of learning all the time because willpower doesn't work for stuff like this. I mean, you can, you know, quote, force yourself to work really hard for a weekend and for an all-nighter, but that's not what it's about. It's about working hard every single week for week after week for months or maybe for years. And I think the only way to do that is not... Um, uh, willpower or forcing yourself to work hard is is, is got to be a habit, and and I think having a community helps. But uh, and and this is why this is one of the reasons we obsess about employee development at Baidu because I think it's an amazing long term investment in the people uh, as well as in the organization. Andrew, there's this great quote that's attributed to you that zips around on Twitter and social media a lot, where it says something to the effect of, "I don't worry about." evil artificial intelligence the same way I don't worry about overpopulation on Mars. Um, and I, I really I really like it because I think it's um, it, it encapsulates the public discussion so well of, of just being so worked up and worried about something that we don't really have the capability or even the first steps to get to the place where we would need to worry about it. So what do you think machine learning as a field can do to sort of make the public conversation um, a little bit calmer, a little bit, you know, focus on the reality of what's happening now in machine learning. Yeah, so to explain the quote, I think, you know, there's been this hype about AI superintelligence and evil killer robots taking over the world. And I think um, uh, I don't worry about that for the same reason that I don't worry about overpopulation on Mars. So I think hundreds of years from now, I actually hope that we will have colonized the planet Mars. And maybe hundreds of years from now, the planet might be overpopulated and there might be, you know, all these children dying of pollution on Mars. And, and, <laughs> Mars and, sounds like a terrible place, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you might be wondering, right, Andrew, how can you be so heartless? <laughs> to not care about all these children dying on Mars. And my answer is, we haven't even set foot on the planet yet. I just don't know how to productively work on that problem. Um, and I think, you know, AI today is becoming much more intelligent. That's a great thing. I don't see a realistic path right now for AI to become sentient, to become self-aware and turn evil and so on. Um, maybe hundreds of years from now, someone will invent a new technology that none of us have thought of yet that will enable AI to turn evil, and, and then obviously we'll have to address it at the time. But for now, I just don't see a way to productively work on the problem. And the reason I don't like the, um, the, the hype about you know, evil killer robots or AI superintelligence is that I think it distracts us from a much more serious conversation about the challenge that technology poses, um, which, which is the challenge to labor or to employment. I think the technology for decades, maybe centuries now, has uh, displaced labor in, in jobs that were automated in a way. Um, and I think that technology broadly, not just AI, but technology is continuing to do that today. Um, the difference with what's happening today is this is happening much faster. So I think when you know farming automation displaced farming labor, uh, the United States 
states took maybe 200 years to transform from a primarily agricultural economy to first manufacturing and then later services. The fact that it took a couple hundred years meant that um, our educational system had to educate the descendants of farmers to do other jobs in farming, and, and we, we, we did that pretty successfully, the transition to manufacturing and then later services. Um, the challenge today is that the job displacement might be much faster. So if we figure out self-driving cars in the next decade or two, we might displace lots of truck drivers. So it's not the descendants of the truck drivers we need to train, it's you know, truck drivers that are alive today that we need to train for a new job. And our educational system has never really been good at doing that at scale. So um, I think you know, uh, things look like Coursera, Linda.com, things like that might be our best shot at, at addressing this problem. But I think even for MOOCs, it will be challenging. I think there's a lot of work ahead of us. So rather than worrying about evil robots, I would rather that um, leaders in technology and in government and in academia and industry have a serious conversation about the challenge to labor, because I think that is something that uh, we should work on. But do you think that there's a responsibility um, in in machine learning and amongst machine learning researchers to try to educate the public about what what the realities of machine learning is or is it or is it a waste of time and we should just continue to focus on advancing the field and not worry about what the public thinks of the field itself I think that is important for machine learning researchers to speak to the public because if um, machine learning researchers, actually what I found is that those of us on the front lines of machine learning, those of us that are you know, actually shipping code every day, right, to tens or hundreds of millions of users, those of us tend to be much less worried about the evil killer robot hype. Um, and I think that if we stay silent, then the hype will dominate the conversation. So I think it is important that you know those of us on the front lines shipping code uh, uh, actually voice an opinion as well. Uh, I think what you said there really resonates with me a lot, which is that the talking about evil, evil killer robots really obscures, I think, very real and immediate tech, uh, sort of ethical issues surrounding machine learning research. You know, uh, thinking about labor displacement is certainly certainly one of them, but also I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about sort of, uh, for example, uh, privacy issues, censorship issues, militarization of different, um, you know, uh, of different technologies. Is this something that you, you spend much time thinking about? Yeah, you know, so um, user privacy is something that uh, Baidu and Fazer can tell all, or maybe almost all leading tech companies take very seriously. Uh, when you do a web search on Baidu, that you know discloses sometimes pretty personal information. And so what I found is that all the as I can tell, all the successful leading tech companies take user privacy very seriously uh, uh, and, and, and really safeguard that with the highest of standards. Um, I think that uh, those of us that work in machine learning, right, you know, like none of us would be working this hard if we didn't think that machine learning were a net force for the good that can, you know, help uh, make information uh, accessible to far more people, help, you know, automate the routine parts of our lives to give us much more time to do productive things or to spend time with families and so on. So clearly, I think machine learning will make the world a much better place. But I think that day-to-day, um, uh, -day, you know, it is important to focus our day-to-day -day work on the things that we think really has the best shot of making the world a better place. 
Do you have any thoughts on some of the technical approaches to, to some of these ethical issues, things like differential privacy? Differential privacy is this idea that uh, you can build a machine learning algorithm that learns from data but does not, in some sense, allow you to recover in individuals, individual pieces of data uh, after training. I think ideas like that are very interesting. I think they have potential. Um, I've not seen them really take off yet in industry. Um, and having said that, I think that so far, I think um, industry has done a good job, right, safeguarding user privacy. There have been, you know, relatively few, uh, 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 yes, sometimes there are well-publicized hacks, more, more losing passwords and so on. But I think NetNet, the leading tech companies, have done a good job taking user privacy seriously and, and, and really being respectful of users' data. Um, I think it would be fascinating to figure out if there are even more safeguards to put in place. I don't know if the technology is ready yet to really go prime time, but it's something, something to keep an eye on. Andrew Ng, he's the chief scientist at Baidu. He's a professor at Stanford. He helped to found Coursera. Really interesting guy. Got yeah. a lot of interesting insights. Yeah, and he's done so much great machine learning work over the years. It's just somebody that you know, when they talk, you definitely want to listen. Definitely. Well, that's all for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Mm-hmm.